Our sermon today will be taken from Obadiah chapter 1, verse 1 to 7. This is the word of God. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise again against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though you, your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, Will they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasure sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Thus says the Lord. All right, so today we're going to take a break from our series in the book of John, which is what we've been doing, and we're going to talk about the book of Obadiah, which I promise is in the Bible. Uh, it's in the Old Testament. It's one of those books that are almost unheard of. And we said at the beginning of the year that our, our big series is through the book of John, but every now and then we're going to take a break and do a series on the Minor Prophets. The Minor Prophets is the last 12 books of the Old Testament. Uh, in the Old Testament, there is what's called Major Prophets and Minor Prophets. Minor doesn't mean they're less important. It just means that their books are shorter. In length compared to the major prophets. So last time we did Jonah, and this time we're going to go through Obadiah. And um, the minor prophets, especially books like Obadiah and Amos and all those other books, they don't really get much attention. Uh, we don't really preach on them much. I don't know if, I, I think I've heard one sermon on Obadiah uh, the whole time I've, I've been a Christian. Um, and I understand, I get that. It, it's, it, it's scary because one, It's hard to see how these books are relevant to us. And you, you read that, and you're probably like, what does that have anything to do with me? It doesn't seem relevant. It doesn't seem like it connects with our world today. Um, and also, the second thing of why I think it doesn't get enough attention is because the content is kind of grim, right? It's kind of scary. And you, you heard what God just said then. It's like, I don't want to preach that to people. That, that's, it's just scary to, to, to do that. Um, It's usually God warning his people or other nations like Edom um, of the destruction that is to come to them. And that's just not usually what we think of when we think of God. But hopefully as we go through Obadiah today, we'll see that it's actually very relevant to us. As, as irrelevant as it may seem in the beginning, it's very relevant to us. We'll see that God in the book of Obadiah, through his prophet Obadiah, sends a warning message to a country called Edom. The problem Edom has is actually not too far different from us sitting here today, especially for us who live in an urban metropolitan, in an urban city like Jakarta. The temptations they had, the dangers they were in, is very much similar to the temptations and dangers we might be in right now. See, generally for us who live in urban metropolitans and, and big cities, we're presented with many opportunities. Very good opportunities, financial success, to climb up the corporate ladder. I know some of us here who have exciting startup ventures that are coming about. 
Or some of us may be getting exposure as artists, musicians, painters. Those are all good and exciting things, but what can be dangerous, insidious even, is a danger that lures underneath all of that opportunity. And it's the danger, the temptation, for us to seek what we're going to call today invulnerability. In the midst of all these opportunities, there's a, there's, a, there's a deeper unseen danger for us to seek what we will call invulnerability. We're going to define that later. So we'll see Edom, their downfall was caused because they had a false sense of invulnerability, something that we are at risk today of as well. So because this is a warning passage, the tone of the sermon might also be a little bit scary, <laughs> but I promise by the end of it, um, we will see God's hope and we will see God's redemption uh, given to us through it. Uh, so three things I want to point out from our passage. When man seeks invulnerability, when man thinks they are invulnerable, and when God forfeited his invulnerability. When man seeks invulnerability, when man thinks they are invulnerable, when God forfeited his invulnerability. So pray with me. We'll begin with our first point. Father, this is a challenging text. This is a hard passage often to think about and to swallow. And when we think of God, this is actually the way you're described that often those who are not empathetic to Christianity, this is, this is the passage they use to speak against us, <laughs> to speak against you. And Lord, as we try and dive in such a um, seemingly uh, 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 discouraging passage, I pray that you will... Um, open our eyes to the hope that lies beyond it, uh, the gospel at the end. And Father, also keep our hearts humble, keep us slow, and keep our hearts down to the ground and not prideful, that as we are reminded of the things that we are tempted to do as creatures, which is to overtake you as our Lord and Savior, to overtake, overpower you as the rightful king, that we will receive this soberly, wisely, with understanding, uh, with humble hearts, as we are given the warnings, and we're reminded of the warnings you once told the country of Edom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, point number one, when man seeks invulnerability. Let's, let's start with the first two verses of this passage. Verse one, the vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord concerning Edom. Now, vision doesn't necessarily mean something that uh, he saw. In, in the prophets, the word vision and the word Word, the term word and vision can be interchangeable. Sometimes when a prophet is um, given a word, it's actually something they see. They see the word of God, like Isaiah saw the word of God, but it was actually a vision. And sometimes when a prophet is given a vision, it's actually a word. I, I don't know why it's interchangeable, uh, but the vision of Obadiah doesn't necessarily mean a vision, but it could, be, it could mean a word from God, okay? Regardless, the point Obadiah is trying to make here is that he wanted to make sure the readers knew this was not his own words. This was not from him. This was not his own making. This was from Yahweh. This was from the Lord. And he is a mere servant of this Lord, of this God. Um, the, word, the name Obadiah actually means a servant of God or worshiper of God, depending on how you take it. Um, and there's not much that we know about the prophet Obadiah. All we know um, is a few things in other books in the Old Testament, but what we do know is that he's a prophet in Israel after Israel, shortly after Israel was destroyed by a country named Babylon. Babylon destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed Israel, and this is the scene, this is the context we're in right now. Um, 
Um, for some reason, when is, after Israel was destroyed by Babylon and, and Obadiah was a prophet in the midst of that ruin. So imagine a ruined country, a ruined city, a ruined people. God gave a message to Obadiah, a warning, not to Babylon, the one that destroyed Israel, but to a country called Edom, a neighboring country of Israel. What is God's message to Edom? Let's read the rest of verse 1. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. So God is apparently very, very angry at Edom. But why? Well, we find out in our text later in verse 11, because in the midst of Israel's defeat, after Israel was destroyed by Babylon, Edom, the neighboring country, had some kind of power, but instead of using that power to help Israel, what they did is that they looted Israel. They stole from them. So the leftovers from the war, they took whatever was remaining for themselves when they were weak. Verse 11, we see this. On the day, on, on the day that you stood, you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, talking about Babylon carrying off the wealth of, of Israel, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Edom stole from Israel while Israel was at their weakest spot. And Israel could not retaliate. And the people of Edom, as we see in this passage, also historical records confirm this, they were at the time in a position of strength. They were at a time in a position of seeming invulnerability. Before we move on, let's define what it means to be invulnerable. To be invulnerable is to be absolutely protected from any physical or emotional pain. To be invulnerable is to be absolutely protected from any physical or emotional pain. Edom at this time thought that in this situation, compared to Israel, they were, in fact, invulnerable. Why? Few reasons. If you continue the passage, you'll, you'll, read, you'll read and you'll see that Edom was actually located in a very strategic location. Look at verse 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Now, this was not only figurative language. This was not only like poetic, you who live in the rocks as if you're the one who's strong. This is actual uh, 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 recorded that Edom lived in the clefts of rocks, in mountain terrains. Specifically, the mountain terrains located uh, just east of the region called Araba. If today you want to know where that is, it, it's south of where Syria is today. There's mountain terrains there. And these mountain terrains can be recorded to go up to 1.5 kilometers above sea level. Uh, to make it more understandable to us, perhaps it, you can think about it as almost twice the height of uh, Gunung Krakatau. These mountain terrains, um, they were filled with crevices and caves and holes, and the Edomites made their dwelling in these crevices, in these holes, and this protected them from danger. Verse 4 says, It is as if they soar aloft like the eagle. Their nests are set among the stars. They're protected. And also this location happens to be a very strategic trade route. So people would go through there, not the mountain, but, but below it, to get to other places to do trade. It's a very strategic located place for trade. On top of all of that, in verse 7, we see that Edom at the time had great allies. Because in verse 7, the part of the curse is that people who are once their allies will deceive them. Let's read verse 7. All your allies 
have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. Have does not necessarily mean a past tense. It's a perfect tense. That means it will happen for sure. Um, uh, Your allies will have, for sure will, deceive you. And history does tell us that Edom at one time was a part of a coalition called the Anti-Babylon Coalition, who are a part of, I think, six or seven countries got together um, to fight Babylon, the superpower at the time. So here, we see the Edomites having three things that contributed to them feeling invulnerable or untouchable. One, they had a nice and secure high-rise penthouse housing. Two, they had a booming business. And three, they had powerful allies and friends. Not so different from many people who live in Jakarta. Now, is it wrong to have those things? Absolutely not. Those are, those are great things to have. But what happened to Edom is that these things somehow made them feel invulnerable. It gave them a false sense of invulnerability, make them think that they can do whatever they want to whoever they want. They analyzed the situation. They thought Israel is weak. They don't have as much money as me. They don't have as many powerful friends as I do. They don't have as much strength as we do. And I, I'm powerful. I have many powerful friends. I have a lot of money. I don't want to brag, but look at my house. It's pretty nice. It's pretty big. It's pretty well secured and protected. They thought no way Israel could retaliate. There's no way we would experience any consequence if we were to exploit them right now. Let's do it. Let's take what they have left because in this situation, we are invulnerable. Now, this is extremely important for us today because as we'll see in our second point, the temptation to seek invulnerability is something we here, everyone here, is at risk as well. Regardless of how much money we have or how many powerful friends we might have or not have, we all are, uh, we all could succumb to it. And most likely, if we have not experienced someone who thinks they're invulnerable, hurting us because they have a false sense of invulnerability, maybe we ourselves have been in a position where we had some sort of power and we have used and abused that power in such a way that mistreats other people. Either way, God's wrath, as we have seen and will see, burn towards it. Let's, let's see why. Point number two. When man thinks they are invulnerable. So you look at the passage, and it's obvious that God was really mad at Edom. Read verses 5 to 7. You'll see uh, it's filled with God's curses to Edom due to their false sense of invulnerability. God will take away the three things that made them feel invulnerable. Their natural produce will be destroyed, verse 5. Their treasures will be pillaged, verse 6. And verse 7, their allies will all betray them. God will take away everything that made them feel invulnerable. But, but, but why? Why does it upset God so much that we have power? Well, God isn't against us having power. That, that's not the issue. Power is not a bad thing. God gave power to Adam and Eve, didn't he, in Genesis 2? The power to subdue all of the earth. The power to make all creation uh, and, 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 and flourish it and till the ground to make everything beautiful for the glory of God. Jesus gives his disciples power to cast out demons. God gives elders in a church some sort of power to lead and serve and direct a local congregation. Power isn't bad. 
God isn't angry that we have power. What angers God is a false sense of invulnerability, which is mishandled power. That's what that is, mishandled power. And it's interesting, you go to any bookstore in the city, uh, or maybe you'll find a book that talks about this, but I haven't seen it yet. You go to any, any bookstore, you go to the section on leadership, you're going to see tons of books and tons of chapters that talk about how to handle your money. You're going to see tons of books and tons of chapters that talk about how to handle and manage your time. But I have yet to see one single book or one single chapter that tells you how to handle and manage power. It's very important. It's, very, it's a very dangerous thing to grasp because if not handled well, what will happen to the Edomites is also a possibility for us. It will turn into a false sense of invulnerability. Okay, so what turns power into a false sense of invulnerability? What's the missing ingredient? What, what do you need to put into power that it becomes that? Well, let's look at verse three. Pride. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling. See, money, powerful friends, a lucrative business, a lofty dwelling, things like that, all it does, it gives somebody power. And power can be used either towards God to love and serve others, that we might point them to the gospel, point them to Christ, or it can be used for us to seek a false sense of invulnerability and end up exploiting and mistreating others. The missing ingredient that makes us do the second option instead of the first is our pride. But how does this transition happen? How does, how does pride mix into power so that it becomes a false sense of invulnerability? Yeah. I kept on going over my notes and deleted and reworded it in such a way. How do I explain that? And it's kind of hard to explain, but I think the best way for us to get a picture of it is to actually put ourselves in the shoes of the Edomites, for us to actually feel and experience what they might have felt in their situation. Okay? So let's, let, let's do that. Let's try to as best we can to put ourselves, we're all Edomites here now, let's put ourselves back to who, how they were back then, and it starts off with them, with you, them, you. you you're, 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 part of a, you're part of a strong and popular groups of friends. They're powerful, they stick together, and they'll be safe because they stick together. But not only do you have powerful friends, you spend your days living in a very secure high-rise penthouse or very secure housing. Probably the most well-defended area at the time. I don't know much about ancient warfare, but I know enough to know that back then, whoever had the high ground had the advantage. They were secure. They didn't have anybody threatening them. You spend your days sitting, protected by powerful friends, and also literally at the top of the mountain. And it just so happens that the mountain in which your house is in is also a strategic trading route. So you have plenty of business going your way. And since you're strategically located, you don't go to them. They come to you. These people with lucrative offers come to you and say, do you want my business? There's something empowering. Could even be prideful when somebody goes to your office instead of you going to their office, right? Every day, they come to you. They give you business. All you need to do is come down from your high-rise penthouse, meet them, 
and see whether or not it's something worth investing in. Now, at the end of the day, after people have begged you for your business, you climb back up to your ivory tower, you look up to the skies, and you see a view that can make even the most humble of us prideful. You look up, and what do you see? You see nothing. You see no other person. You see no other mountain that's higher than you. You're it. You're it. You're on the top of the world. And you have a clear, straight shot to the heavens. Perhaps you begin to think, I feel pretty secure right now. I feel pretty invulnerable. I'm financially secure. I'm politically protected. I'm strategically located. And in your heart, you begin to ask the question that the Edomites asked at the end of verse 3. Who will bring me down? Enter pride. Who will bring me down? That's the question that begins to move power to a false sense of invulnerability. Then we're not done. We're not done. An opportunity presents itself where you have a choice to either use your power for God's glory or to your own advantage. Your allies, Israel, has fallen to Babylon, and you have a choice now to help them to use your resources to bless them, or because you think you're invulnerable, untouchable, you can get away with anything, you exploit them, you mistreat them. Which did Edom choose? To exploit them. Why? Because they thought, who's going to bring me down? Who's going to dare fight back? Who's strong enough to go against us? Israel is not. No one else is going to. Look at my friends. Look at my wealth. Look at my house. Look at my business. I am untouchable. See, this is what a false sense of invulnerability does in sinful man. It makes us, tempts us to mistreat others for our own advantage. This angers God, not only because we have hurt others, but because we have falsely think without understanding, God says in verse 7. They have no understanding. Verse 3, your pride has deceived you. We think we're God. We think no one else can touch us. See, a person without understanding is placed on top of the mountain, and they look up, and they have a straight view to the heavens, and they think, I see no one else. No one could touch me. But a person with understanding, you know what they do? They're placed on top of the mountain, they look up, and they're reminded of God. Their straight view to the heavens, the fact that no one else is there, should give them a clearer view straight to the eyes of God. Who will bring you down? God says in verse 4, I will. I can. No matter how high your mountaintop is, I will bring you down. Though you soar with the eagles, though you build your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down. Not a bad memory verse to keep in our hearts. Understanding, sobriety, wisdom looks up and we're reminded of him. Now, some of us may think, yeah, but those who are prone to using power into a a false sense of invulnerability, those are the non-Christians, right? Those are the people out there. We're, We're Christians. We know better than that. We're God's people. We're not prone to all that. But be careful. Don't forget why Israel was destroyed by Babylon in the first place. Why were they destroyed? Because of their pride. Let's read Jeremiah 25, among other verses. The word has come to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah, which is Israel, in the fourth year of 
Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, talking to Israel here, because you have not obeyed my world, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants. Israel was destroyed by Babylon because of their sense of pride, because of their disobedience, because of their sin. These are, this is God's people, right? These are people who should know better. They were destroyed because of their pride. The threat God gave Edom has already happened to Israel. And God used Babylon to destroy them. We're not, we're not untouchable by this. We are prone to this like everyone else is. What is the book of Judges all about? It's a cycle of Israel being prideful, and then God sends a nation to discipline them, and then they're crying out, oh God, we need your help, and God raises up a judge to save them, and then they become prideful again, and another nation comes and destroys them, and they're crying, oh God, save us, and then another judge comes up over and over and over and over. We are very susceptible to this. The cycle continues. You don't have to be non-Christian to fall into this. You don't even have to be rich or well-connected. We're all prone to this. The, the problem isn't the power, remember. It's the pride in our hearts. Here's an example a story of a Christian friend of mine in the U.S. He didn't have much power. He didn't have much money. He didn't have political friends on top. But yet he turned the little power he had into a false sense of invulnerability. And it's okay. He'd be okay with me sharing this because he's already repented from it. He, he saw it. He's repentant from it, and you don't know him anyway, so it doesn't really matter. All right. <laughs> when working for a campus ministry, like I did, it's very tempting to want to beat your fellow staff members in getting more people to come to your events. You always want to have the bigger Bible study. You want to always have the most people coming to the summer projects. You always want to be the guy who's like the hero, right? It's always a temptation. Um, and I know someone who worked in a campus ministry, and he wanted so bad to get a lot of people to go to one of our summer retreats, which is a 10-week-long 10, 10 summer project, we called it. Um, and he told me that one of the guys he was ministering to um, in the spring semester, so the semester before the summer started, um, and the guy he was ministering to wasn't a Christian, uh, but he was close, I think, or he seemed like he was close to, to receiving the gospel, and he wasn't a Christian, and he got his girlfriend pregnant. Um, this is right before the 10-week, or this is, he got his girlfriend pregnant, I think, the semester before, and then before the summer project was about to begin, his girlfriend was going to deliver the child. So this guy was confused. He was saying, he was asking my friend, should I go? Should I, should I stay here and be with my girlfriend who's pregnant and care for her in this really hard time in her life? Or should I go to this, to this summer project? And my friend told him he should go to the summer project. He told this guy to leave his girlfriend, his pregnant girlfriend, who was about to deliver, leave her during the delivery, leave her for 10 weeks in Orlando. He even told them that if he stayed behind, he'd be less Christian. Because it's more spiritual to go to a 10-week summer project, right? Luckily, the guy didn't end up going, and my friend did repent from it. But here's an example of a Christian, a, st a staff member of a, of a campus ministry. Doesn't have much money, not politically powerful, doesn't have a big house. But his pride turned the little bit of power he had into a false sense of invulnerability 
and he chose to exploit others. Not because he had a lot of powerful friends or money, but because he thought, I'm good with words. I know my Bible verses. Uh, uh, I have a certain degree of spiritual power and authority in this community. And he told me I wanted to exploit this guy for my own advantage, that I can look good, that I brought one more person to the summer project. And I'm good enough with my words, and I know enough Bible verses to do it in such a way that I'll look spiritual while doing it. Who can bring me down, he thought. I'm, I'm good enough with words. I know enough Bible verses. Who's going to take me down? I'm not, no one's going to take me down. I'm actually going to get praised for it because of the little bit of power that I have. Have we done this in any way? It doesn't have, we don't have to be powerful. We don't have to have a lot of friends or money. Perhaps we are a leader in our company. Perhaps one of our staff who is below us, we mistreat them because we think we can get away with it. Or perhaps our fellow coworker who is a more junior position than you are, who can bring me down, you think? I can mistreat them the way I want. Some of us live with our parents, and we live with their uh, house uh, uh, helpers and their drivers. Perhaps they're the ones we feel invulnerable to. They're not going to talk back. They're not going to do anything bad to us. Who, who can touch me? I can mistreat them if I want. Perhaps it's a friend who is below you in a social ladder, or you think is below you in a social ladder, and you think I have some sort of invulnerability here to say whatever I want to them because I'm untouchable. Or perhaps it's somebody who's sinned against you. Often when somebody sins against you, that puts you in a position of power above them. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you have to be all lovey-dovey with them. All I'm saying is when somebody sins against you, they're, they're in the process of repenting, you have power over them. And just beware to not use your position of power to exploit them. And if you've never experienced being in this position, you will. You'll get in a point in life where you will have power. It might not be staff of your company, might not be a coworker, but perhaps your spouse, perhaps your children. You will have that, and you must deal with this now before you're put in that position of power, or else it's going to handle you, and you're going to be like the Edomites who think they're invulnerable. We're all susceptible to it. We're all vulnerable to it. And to the Edomites, to us, God says, remember, look up, see me. <laughs> I will bring you down. So we've explored the problem Probably some of us are a little bit depressed at this point. I know Edom was when they heard this, uh, that our pride is prone to make power into a false sense of invulnerability and exploits others uh, uh, in the process of it and offends God because it challenges him as if we're the ones with all the power and not him. So God responds to us by saying, I can take you down. I can take you down if I want two things we have yet to address. How can God bring us down? And is this the only response God has for us? Is he only just going to bring us down? If, because if I'm prone to this and God's response is he's going to bring us down, what hope is there for me? Is my fate going to be the same as Israel's and as Edom's, as the nation of Israel and as Edom's? Well, let's get into our third point, final point. Point three, when God forfeited his invulnerability. 
So first let's talk about how does the Lord bring people down from this false sense of invulnerability, which is actually the most loving thing for him to do. Um, interestingly enough, read our passage, God uses unfortunate situations to do that. Look at verse 5 to 7. Again, it's all about God bringing about other nations to overtake them. God brought about an unfortunate situation in our lives to bring us down. We know this to be true for Edom. They did lose their prominent place in the anti-Babylon coalition. And eventually in 553 BC, the mountains they once dwelled in was taken over by the Nabataeans. They're done. And also know this to be true to the nation of Israel, God's own people, who are destroyed by Babylon due to their pride and disobedience. Now, I'm not saying that every bad situation in life is God's attempt to try to tell you you're prideful right now, or God trying to bring you down for this position of seeming false invulnerability. No, not, not all bad situations in life is for that purpose. Oftentimes, we don't know why God brought it about. And if you're in one of those situations, I'd love to sit with you. I'd love to talk through it with you and empathize with you um, of, 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 of the whole thing. Um, so that's not what I'm saying, but what I do think our passage requires us to at least be curious about is to ask ourselves or to tell ourselves that we must not be so quickly to move on from a bad situation as if it's just something to be forgotten and put in the past. He's saying it could be, it could be beneficial to ask whether or not God is trying to remind me something here, that I'm not invulnerable and brings about an uncontrollable situation in our lives to remind us, you are not the creator, I am. Uncontrollable situations tend to remind us of our vulnerability, and also this passage implies all the earthly blessings are good, and it's not bad to receive it. We sh it would be wise to receive it with a certain degree of awe and reverence, knowing that what you're about to take into your grasp can very well lead you if kept unchecked, to a false sense of invulnerability. It's best you manage that power and handle it well. But what difference is there then for God's people? If God treated Israel in the way he treated Edom, Israel representing Christians, us, God's people today, what hope is there for us? Are we going to be destroyed like them? Is that our fate as well? Well, it's interesting. If you read the book of Obadiah till the end, you'll see it ends with God actually restoring Israel. It ends with God bringing, redeeming Israel from their utter demise. Now, this isn't a promise ultimately just made to the nation of Israel. It's made to all of us here today. But how will God redeem us? Where is their hope? Where is our restoration found in? Well, let's talk about it in this angle. It's, it's found in us receiving the relationship he has offered to us, a relationship that required God to give up his right for invulnerability. Let's, let me explain. Let's talk about that. Remember when earlier we defined invulnerability. We defined invulnerability as the power to be absolutely protected from physical or emotional harm. The power to be absolutely protected from physical or emotional harm. When God, the only being who has the right to be invulnerable, offers himself to enter into relationship with us sinful men, what happened to God? Well, if you read the Old Testament, what did God experience in this relationship? He was hurt all the time. He was saddened all the time by his people. Let's just go through some of the passages 
Uh, you see this a lot in Jeremiah and Hosea. Let's go through Jeremiah 2, verse 4 to 5. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob. L- listen to the, to, the, to, the, to the sadness here. And all the clans of the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went afar from me? Why did you leave me, God said. Verse 13, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. The fountain of living waters and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. 32, can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me, days without number. God did not have to go through all this pain. But he chose to open up himself for us. Jeremiah 8, 18 to 19, my joy is gone. (laughs) Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. Behold the cry of the daughter of my people from the length and breadth of the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and with their foreign idols? And the book of Hosea, what is that all about? The book of Hosea is God telling Hosea to pursue and marry who? A prostitute. And the prostitute would cheat on Hosea, and God tells Hosea to keep pursuing this prostitute who continually cheats on him, and Hosea is asking, why, this is hurtful. Why are you doing this to me? This pains me. And God's saying, because that's exactly what you guys are doing to me. When you sin, when you worship other things above me, when you find ultimate identity and power and strength, when you find satisfaction in in something else, you're hurting me every single day. So here we see God the only being who has the right to remain invulnerable gave that up. He opened himself up to pain, to be vulnerable. Why? So that he can experience relationship with who? With us. And risk being hurt, being angered, being provoked, being saddened. But that's not all. Where do you think is the ultimate example of where God gave up his invulnerability for his people? On the cross. On the cross, where he paid for our sins, where he took upon himself the destruction we deserve because of our rebellion, he opened himself to being vulnerable. See, on the cross, what we see, we see the only being who had the option to remain invulnerable give it up and suffered so that his people can be saved. God allowed himself to be hurt emotionally and physically Why? Why would anybody give the power to be invulnerable? Well, friends, because if you love someone that much, you risk. If you love someone that much, you open yourself up to being hurt. God would rather give up his invulnerability to have us rather than hang on to it and not have us at all. See, this is our hope. This is the only way we can be restored, redeemed, from all our rebellion, from challenging his rightful place as creator, from our false sense of invulnerability that ends up hurting others, from God's wrath that's due to us, it was all satisfied on that cross. And now we have hope for redemption, restoration, secure in what he has done. And the biggest difference between God's people in the Old Testament and Edom is that God's people, ultimately all who receive Christ, will be restored. Not because we're any better, but because of his mercy. And now see, this, this brings bad situations into a whole different light, to a whole different context. Bad situations that befall us if we've received Christ as Lord and Savior, we now know it is never meant to destroy us. When a bad situation happens to you and you are in Christ, it is never meant to consume us, but just to refine us, just to 
purge us, to make us more like him, we will not be utterly destroyed by it. We will grow from it because he has already taken the destruction that was meant for us. His fire is not meant to consume his people, but merely refine. See, this, this is the motivation for us not to abuse our power. Some of us here might be in a pretty bad situation right now. I don't know all your situations, um, what the Lord has brought upon you. But in Christ, be reminded, look at the cross. Somebody has already been destroyed for you. This is not wrath. This is love as a loving father disciplines. The wrath has already been put on Christ. And this is why now, as we live life, we're motivated not to abuse power. We don't abuse our power, not because God's threat of bringing us down, but because we realize God has brought himself down for us. The most powerful being in the universe laid down his right for invulnerability, climbed on a cross, opened himself to being hurt so that he can spend eternity with you. But the gospel is not only the power, the gospel is not only the motivation for us to not become prideful, it's also an example for us to follow. Philippians 2, have this mind among yourselves. Have the, have the mind of Christ among yourselves. Jesus, who did not hold equality with God as something to be grasped, something to be held onto tightly, he let it go for you. Have that mind among yourselves. 1 Timothy 2, to this you were called, that he suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might walk in his footsteps. And now as redeemed creatures in Christ, we are called to not use whatever power we have to feed into our false sense of invulnerability, to exploit others, but for service that others may glorify him and hear the gospel through our words and deeds. So let's end here. Next time, when you're in a position of power, and it'll happen, you will be, whether it's in your company or in your family or in your social circles, receive it carefully with awe and reverence, because you're about to put into your hands something that must be handled very carefully, then look up. And if you feel like you're on top, if you feel like no one else is above you, if you have a straight shot view to the heavens, don't be prideful, don't lack understanding, don't let it make you feel invulnerable, but let it remind you of the one who gave up his invulnerability and chose to suffer so that you may live. Receive that love, be reminded of it, and then live on representing it to the world. To him be all the glory, honor, power forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, what a difficult message to receive. It is, in fact, a warning. It is, in fact, something to be taken Um with a degree of reverence, with a degree of weight behind it. And Father, I hope and I pray that um, in this seemingly scary message, it is a scary message actually, we pray that you remind us, those who are in Christ, of the gospel, remind us of he who died for us, who took all the destruction meant for us, and who gave up his power, who did not need to be invulnerable, who... I mean, who did not need to be vulnerable, who, who had the right to remain invulnerable, to remain protected from all physical and emotional pain, but yet chose to give it up that he may be in relationship with us. Why? Why would you want me that bad? I can never answer. But this I thank you, that you have opened yourself up to pain, 
for us. Father, what an amazing God we serve. What an amazing creator we now going on representing that we may live on this world, risking ourselves, being vulnerable, opening up ourselves to emotional pain, even physical pain, if your glory may be represented and may be shot through by it and if others may flourish from it. When we look up, when we see a straight shot to the heavens, let it remind us of you, the one who came down for us and died in our place. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.